Thank you so very much, Julie and praise team. And thank you very much, Dan, for sharing those verses with us. And thank you for leading us so wonderfully in prayer. We are so very grateful. When I was a boy, about seven or eight years of age, I had a very unusual accident. In our home, we had a lower cupboard with a rotating shelves. And one day, about seven or eight years of age, I opened up that cupboard and a can of vegetables fell out and landed right on my big toe. Well, a blood blister developed underneath the toenail. And I want to tell you, that was horribly, horribly painful for a seven or eight year old. Now, this was on the weekend. I think it was a Saturday that it happened, and so our doctor was obviously not at his office. You know what my dad did? He got the phone and called the doctor at his home. You could do that then. You could call the doctor up right at his home. Dr. Peterson answered. My dad told him what happened, and here's what Dr. Peterson said. He said to my dad, I want you to take a sewing needle, and I want you to heat it red hot over the flame on the stove. Then I want you to drill down through that toenail, release the blood, and eliminate the pressure. Now, how was I at seven or eight years of age going to let my dad do that? (laughs) How was I going to watch as he took a sewing needle Heated it red hot. How was I going to sit there while this amateur (laughs) drilled down through my toenail what looked like it was going to be a whole lot more painful? And how was I going to stay calm so that he would remain steady and not burn me as I jerked away? I think back on that and wonder, how in the world did I ever let my dad do that? Well, as I've thought about it, there are several reasons. Number one, I really believe that Dr. Peterson knew what he was talking about. I really liked him. And I knew he knew this is what needed to be done. The other was, I was in horrible, horrible pain and I wanted relief. And then the third, I trusted my dad. I knew he loved me. I knew he cared about me. I knew he would be careful. And I knew he would do what was best. And you know what? It worked. It worked. The hole released the blood and it didn't hurt. The pressure was eliminated. My toe stopped throbbing. And when the toenail grew back later on, it grew back more dense than the other one. To this very day, it's denser. Whenever I clip that toenail, I remember that day. Now, let me ask you this morning, do you think there's an application to our lives as Christians from this? Do you think there is? I believe there is. God permits painful experiences in our lives. Sometimes He actually causes them. And the pain is so unbearable at times that we just cry out for relief 
But the relief does not come in the way that God, or we necessarily expected it would come. And so what we have to do is trust our Father. We have to trust that He loves us, that He cares about us, that He knows what He's doing. And we have to let Him do what He must do in our lives. And if we will, in the long run, we know it will be best. Now, it's very easy to say, isn't it? It's very hard to do, particularly when that needle looks this long. And you're wondering, is this really the best process? So how do we do that? How do we trust our Father in the midst of those times? Well, this morning I want to flesh that out in our message. We are coming to uh, Romans chapter 5 now in our series in the book of Romans, And this morning we come to this unusual title, Can We Rejoice in Trials? Can we actually, as Christians, do that? I can rejoice now in what my father did those many years ago. But how can we rejoice when we're in the midst of it? Let's do a little responsive reading this morning because the Apostle Paul gives us three reasons as to why we can rejoice in trials Three reasons to the answers to this question. Now, this morning we're going to look at the first two in verses 1 and 2. And then we will look at the really hard part, verses 3 and 4 next week. But let's read this together as a responsive reading. Join me, Romans 5, 1 to 4. Let's read together. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations, trials. Also knowing that tribulation trial works patience and patience experience and experience hope. Let's bow together in prayer. And then we'll look at the first two answers this morning to this question. Lord, we are a needy people. We are suffering people. And it's often our very sufferings that cause us to turn away from you. But this passage, inexplicably, contradictory almost, tells us that our suffering should actually increase our confidence in our hope. Christians are the only ones that can look at it that way. And so we pray today that you will teach us this for each one of us. Multitudes of times in our lives are going to be in this pattern of suffering that leads to endurance, that leads to experience or proven character, and ultimately leads to hope that will happen many, many times. And we need to know that you're a good and loving God doing all this for our welfare. Teach us now, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's notice the first answer to this question, all right? Number one, God is for believers as a friend. He is not against us as an enemy. If you are a Christian here today and you know that Christ lives within your heart, you need to let this drill deep into your mind and into your thoughts. Now notice how verse 1 begins. Verse 1 tells us, since we have been justified by faith, verse 1 of chapter 5. 
And what this does is it picks up the final verse of, uh, of chapter 4. Remember in chapter 4, we are told that we have been justified by faith. And that's God's way of making us right with Himself. And notice what it says. Here's what God did. He delivered Jesus up for our sins. And then He raised Him from the dead so that we might be accepted by God Almighty. Now Paul says to us, when that happens, something else happens, we have peace with God. If you drop down to verse 11, which is the end of this particular segment, that expression, peace with God, is described as reconciliation. And reconciliation means we now have become friends. The hostility is over. It's all done with. Friendship has been established. The enmity between us and God is over. And we now, as believers in Christ, are at peace with God, our Heavenly Father. Do you know in the Old Testament, the Jewish people saw this time of peace as being in the future when God would establish His kingdom. And so it was way in the future when the Messiah came that God then would bring peace to His people and there would be peace between them and God and peace on earth. Now one of the great passages in the Old Testament that teaches us this and taught them that is this wonderful passage we all know from Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Let me read it for you. Notice how peace occurs twice. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This was the great peace all the Jews were looking forward to. And I want you to notice the two links with peace. They saw it as coming in the future when God established his kingdom on this earth. And the Prince of Peace would bring that peace about. Now here's what we are told. Here's what the Gospel says. The Gospel says the Prince of Peace has already come. And He has already established peace by His cross. Look down at verse 8 here in Romans 5. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now think about this. What the Jews were waiting for in the distant future is available now. Peace with God, says the Bible, is not just something later. It is something we can enjoy right this very moment. Let me ask you, how do you view God? How do you view God? Is not that all important? Isn't our view of God all important? Of course it is. Of course it is. Listen to A.W. Tozer's great statement about this. 
Listen to what this well-known pastor said. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What you are thinking about God right now is the most important thing about you. And then he said, low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. And that is exactly right. If you are not a Christian today, would you please not have a low view of God? God is not your friend. You are His enemy. He wants to be your friend, but His holiness prohibits Him from being the friend of a sinner until you trust His Prince of Peace. And if you have any other view of God as a non-Christian, it is a low view of God. Now, if you are a Christian, would you please also not have a low view of God? If you are a Christian, God is not your enemy. God is your friend. He has made you His friend. If you belong to the Prince of Peace, then you have been justified by faith. The war is over. In the ancient classical Greek language, the word peace meant cessation of hostilities. And what that means is this, God is for you. He is not against you. Can I hear an amen from Christians today? Absolutely. And unless we believe this with all of our hearts, when the suffering comes, we will not be able to trust our Father. Unless I know I am not His enemy, He is not my enemy, He has become my friend and He is for me, not against me, when the suffering comes and that needle looks that long with a red hot tip, we will not be able to trust our Father. This is so important. Now let's look at the second answer to this question this morning. Number two, God's friendship is permanent and guarantees our future hope. We need to dwell on this very, very seriously this morning. This friendship that we have been brought into with God is permanent And it guarantees our future hope. Look at verse 2 again. Through Him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, you know what this would happen at this point in Paul's original audience? A Jew would raise their hand and say, wait a minute, I have a question. We know what we thought we had in Judaism. We thought as Abraham's descendants that we had a secure relationship with God. Now the gospel is telling us that none of that guarantees anything. In fact, as Jews, God has cast us off and we need Jesus just like the Gentiles do. The gospel tells us as Jews, we're enemies of God too. And what we thought we had... We now have lost. 
How do we know that this new gospel will last? A Jewish person would raise their hand and say, wait a minute, how do we know if we put our trust in the Prince of Peace, who now is Jesus, our relationship will be secure, not only for time, but for eternity. Let me ask you, is this just a Jewish question? Is this just a Jewish question? No, it is not. If you are a thinking Christian, and I hope all of us are thinking Christians, this is our question. If I put my trust in Jesus, who says He is God and Savior and Lord and King, How do I know this will not be temporary and I will end up being lost in the end? By the way, how many of you think that's an essential question for having peace of mind in life? How many want to go through life thinking you can have peace if this is what you believe? He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, He loves me not. How many think that that's a peaceful way to go through life? I don't think so. So this is a very serious question. Are genuine Christians secure and can never be lost? Every Christian has to come to grips with that. Now let me be very clear here this morning. I'm not talking about fake Christians. The Bible's not talking about pretend Christians. This is not for Christians in name only who do not really love Jesus. We have to say very clearly, of course, pretend Christians who are playing games with God do not have nor can they claim security. What I'm talking about is real Christians. I'm talking about Christians who know that their lives have been changed by the grace of God, can they claim what this says, this friendship is permanent, and it guarantees our future hope. Did you notice what this verse says? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Did you see that? Uh, Let me ask you this. How can you rejoice in something you're not sure is going to last? Right? Suppose a contractor came over to my house and he said, You know, I think it would be great if you got a steel roof on your home. And I'll tell you what. If you buy this steel roof from me, I will guarantee you that it will last for life. I will give you a lifetime guarantee. Maybe. How many of you would think that was something to rejoice in? Can you imagine me coming home, honey? I made a wonderful deal today. I bought a steel roof for our home. They're going to come and install it. And the guy that I brought it from, the salesman, said, it is a lifetime guarantee, maybe. I am so triumphant. By the way, do you know that's the meaning of the word rejoice here? 
when he says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, he's not talking about some euphoric joy. The word to rejoice here means to brag or boast. If you have the ESV like I do, there's a little note, footnote in your Bible and says the word means to boast. And it's not boasting in a haughty way, it's boasting in a confident way. Uh, there used to be an old TV program where the star of the program would often say, no brag, just fact. No brag, just fact. That's the kind of rejoicing that is here. It is not a haughty sort of rejoicing or bragging. Rather, what it is, is a sort of a uh, no brag, just fact. I am so sure of this that it is absolutely confident. Now, what is the glory of God here? The glory of God is the glory that we're going to experience with Jesus when He takes us home someday. And when He says, we hope, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, the word hope in the Bible, it is a sure confidence. When you see hope, it is not an uncertain hope like we have every day with the weather or our health. I look outside and I see the nice sun. I hope the weather today will uh, stay this way. How many think in the UP that's a good hope? No, this is a joyful, confident expectation which rests on the promises of God. When the Bible says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God that someday Jesus will give us when He takes us home, it is a joyful and confident expectation which rests on the promises of God. In fact, I want you to see how in this very chapter, that's how the word hope is used. Let's read together just a few verses later, Romans 5, 5. Would you please read it together with me? Hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. Let me ask you, as a Christian, how certain are you that God has poured out His love into your heart by the Holy Spirit He has given to you? How certain are you of that? I like that word, total. I like that. That's how certain your hope is. Look at this. This hope he's talking about does not disappoint us. If it's not certain, if it's not secure, it's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is a hope the Christian has because the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our heart and He has brought the love of God and now we know this hope will never disappoint us. Now, I want you to notice this is so important to the Apostle Paul that he tells us two very important things when we ask this question, will this last? Will it last? Let me give them to you and then we'll look at them for just a moment. Number one, we have been introduced to the King and He is permanently available to us. Let me say that again. We have, in this grace of salvation, been introduced to the King, 
And that king is permanently available to us. Notice what verse 2 says. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith. That's a very important phrase. The word obtained access, or the phrase, meant entrance to the king through the favor of another. Think about that. Entrance to the king through the favor of another. It was used of being brought into a king's audience chamber to be presented to him. That's what Jesus has done. As Jesus died and rose again for us, now when we come into a relationship with him by faith, what he does is he brings us right into the presence of the king and he introduces us to him and he says, now he's no longer your judge, but he is your heavenly father. Do you remember when Queen Esther in the book of Esther wanted to go and see her husband, King Artaxerxes? Remember what happened? I've discovered something um, on the internet. There's a famous painting of almost every scene in the Bible. And you don't have to travel to an art gallery anymore to see those paintings. So uh, I'm going to bring this famous painting of this episode right here. Here's Queen Esther. This is an ancient painting that was made of the scene, and there's King Artaxerxes. There is her husband. And you remember the story. Queen Esther could not see her husband without an official invitation. The audacity of approaching the king without an invitation could cause certain death except for one thing. If he held out the royal scepter, the person approaching him was welcomed. So fearful was Queen Esther about her possible death because she did not have an invitation. Do you remember how long she asked her uncle Mordecai to pray and fast for this visit? Three days, three nights. She said, in fact, get every, get every Jew in the capital city of Susa to pray and fast three days, three nights. So fearful was she. And this is what she said in Esther 4.16. I'll go to the king, though it's against the law. She said, if I perish, I perish. Remember what happened? Let me read it for you. Esther 5.2. She won favor in his sight. He held out to Esther the golden scepter. You know what is very interesting? Romans 5.2 is illustrated by Esther 5.2. And what I want to say here is this. It's the very same image. And let me ask you this question. As a Christian, what is your view of God? What is your view of God? It better be this image. Do you see God with a club ready to strike you? Or do you as a Christian see God with a golden scepter welcoming you? If you're going to survive your suffering, your trials, your questions, your perplexities, this better be your view of God or you will turn away from Him in the hard times. By the way, this is a permanent welcome. And you say to me, Pastor, how do I know it's a permanent welcome? Because the word obtained 
is in the perfect tense. Paul changes tenses here. And the perfect tense refers to a past action that has continuing results or has brought us into a permanent state. So what this is telling us is the scepter is held out to us permanently. We are permanently in a privileged position of acceptance by God. How many of us this morning can say amen to that? Amen to that. We are in a permanent position of privileged acceptance by God. Now here's the second answer to the question, will it last? Number two, we are standing in grace and we will stand at the final judgment. Let me say that again. We are standing in grace as a Christian and we will stand in the final judgment. Let me show you what people will say when the end time events come and God begins to pour out His judgment on this world. Look at what they will say in Revelation 6, 16 and 17. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And read the last sentence with me. And who is able to stand. Isn't that the question everyone wants to know at the end? Isn't it? When the judgment comes, will I be able to stand? Will I stand in that judgment? Or will I be thrown into the lake of fire? And look what Romans 5.2 says. It says, into this grace in which we stand. Stand. And it's the perfect tense again. The perfect tense again. A past action with an existing result and a permanent state of Fears. You know what this tells me? This tells me God never acts toward a Christian except out of grace. God never acts toward a Christian except in grace. Be very careful of falling into this pattern. I'm saved by grace, kept by works. I'm saved by grace, kept by works. Now to be sure, grace produces works. If grace doesn't develop in your life a love for Jesus, a desire to follow Him, and a desire to serve Him, you've never experienced grace. But I want us to understand here very clearly this morning, we are saved by grace, we are kept by grace. Let me ask you, how are my feeble works going to keep me saved? How are my inconsistent, feeble works 
They're often tainted by impure and wrong motives. How in the world are those things going to keep me saved? And yet what happens? We think in our minds, I am saved by grace, and now my works are going to keep me saved. What does the Bible say? Into this grace in which we stand, past action, permanent results, we are saved by grace, we are kept by grace. Yes, grace produces works, but those works never keep us saved. It is only the grace of God. God always acts toward His children, never in any other way but grace. Years ago, I was listening to the well-known pastor, Lehman Strauss. He was preaching on grace. And he said there is saving grace, and he said there is standing grace. And I'd never heard that before. Have you? Have you heard that there is saving grace and standing grace? You know what he also said? He said there's suffering grace, grace for suffering. And this is what he said. He's now gone home to be with the Lord. He said, when I trusted Christ, I was saved by grace. And he said, I've been standing in grace ever since. What do we often say to the winner of a contest? He's the last man, what? Standing. That will be true of every believer. We're standing in grace now. We will be standing in grace tomorrow. And we will be standing in grace at the last judgment. It is a permanent position. And unless you know that, you're going to go through life, particularly when you suffer, When that needle looks this long and the end is white hot and you want relief and you're wondering, Lord, why are you allowing me to be burned like this? If you think He loves me, He loves me not. He loves me, He loves me not. How can you trust a God like that? How can you? Now, our hope is secure. We've been introduced to the King. It's permanently available to us. And we are standing in grace. And we will stand in grace at the final judgment. And because that's true, when the horrible suffering comes, we can trust a Father who loves us, cares for us, knows what He's doing, and will do what is best for us. That's our confidence this morning. That's how we rejoice in trials. Let's bow together in prayer, shall we?
Father, I pray today for any non-Christian amongst us. Help them to understand everything that has just been said does not apply to them. God is not their friend because they are God's enemy. And God wants to be their friend. But the only way a holy God can be friend with an unrighteous sinner is through the death and resurrection of the Prince of Peace. And Lord, I pray that even this very moment, a non-Christian might say, I don't want to live life with God as my judge. I want to live life with God as my friend. And I want to turn to the Prince of Peace. I want to repent. I want to put my faith in Him. I want to trust Him to introduce me into the presence of the King and give me a standing in grace before Him. And this very day, I turn from my own way. I turn to Jesus. And I trust Him. I pray, Lord, for those of us who are Christians who have slipped in to a works mentality, thinking that we were saved by grace, but now we keep ourselves secure by our own works. Lord, may we repent of that kind of thinking. I pray that we would recognize that yes, grace always produces works. It produces a changed life. It produces someone who loves Jesus and wants to serve Him and wants to follow Him. I pray for anybody today who is a pretend Christian who thinks that they've accepted Jesus but they don't really love Him or want to follow Him or want to live for Him. Convict them. That's not saving grace. But help the rest of us who know the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit and that hope that comes with the Holy Spirit will never disappoint us. Help us to rest in that grace, to live in that grace, to know that we are saved by grace. Now we stand by grace and we'll be able to suffer by grace. I pray for a suffering believer right now. Lord, there are many in this room. I pray that you will help them to grasp onto these great truths and find encouragement. You know what you're doing. May they trust you in the midst of it. Thank you now. Oh, thank you now. For Jesus' sake. Amen. As always, if you have questions about what has been shared today from God's Word, we are here to help you. I can take time for you. There might be other Christians here in our church who can help you. And if you're not sure where you stand with the Lord, we want to help you there. If you need some area of spiritual growth or understanding, 
If we don't have an answer, we can look for the answer, try to find it for you. But we want to help you to understand these things and live in the blessing of them. The praise team is coming now. I love this final song. I think it's so beautiful for the sermon today and the Word of God. And So we're going to stand together and close our service with this great song. And then we're going to take about a 15-minute break. Uh, you can go ahead and stand. That's perfectly great. Let's all just stand. About, take about a 15-minute break. And then we're going to come back. And uh, I'll be in the enviable position of turning this over to somebody else more capable of leading than I am. And uh, I really encourage you, particularly if you are a member, don't, uh, don't ignore the business of the church. This is a part of following Christ. Uh, it's, it's not something that is just extraneous to it. We, we need to take concern about the business of the church. And so uh, we welcome you. We have some exciting things to share, and so it's important. And even if you're not a member, you're welcome to stay as we get started at 1130. Let's, let's sing together, all right?